Talk.com. You don't need to expect us. We're already here. This is the people's war. It is our war. We are the fighters. Fight it then. Fight it with all that is in us. And may God defend the right. Warning, warning. We gotta stop them. They're gonna kill us all. See how the trouble you've started? Be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human beings. Time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to win the day to the people who run it, to the people who own it. And unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. Revolution Radio of FreedomSlips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. Right, you tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Revolution We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyal? Is it sedition? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take. But as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given right, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. All right, uh, here we are at Newcastle Central Station once again on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, uh, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Free Association. Uh, I've got a a good hotspot connection today, so everything should go according to plan. <laughs> I tried three different Wi-Fi networks, and I couldn't get onto any of them. But I brought my phone with me, so I'm on the I'm on the phone hotspot with a good signal, so we should be all right. Given a phone wind, assuming the laptop manages to stay working with more than one tab open at a time, which it sometimes doesn't. But we'll see how we go. So. Um, to begin, where to begin? Let's start with start with yesterday. I seem to I seem to be using this format recently, so I'll stick with it. 
because it's working for me. So I'll start with where I am and where the world is, and uh, hopefully move into move into something useful from there. So for me, Fridays is my uh, protesting day. Uh, I had a meeting with a woman from Restart, which is a an organisation that's helping me find a job because I seem to not not have much luck with jobs at the moment. The last one was a an absolute nightmare, so they're giving me some intensive help with finding jobs, which means they're telling me what to apply for and putting me forward whether I say yes or no. So that might help a little bit. So one of them might come off, you never know. I'm open to it. Uh, feels a little bit intimidating. It's a little bit like being uh, being pushed in front of a crowd, uh, waiting for something to happen on stage or whatever, but it's it's not actually that at all. It's like it is a push, but it's a push that I'm I'm happy to accept if it pushes me in a good direction. I've already made it clear I'm I'm not working on Saturdays, and uh, and I prefer to work 30 hours rather than 35. But if something comes up, it's 35 or 37 hours, and it's night night to five Monday to Friday, then I'll cut. I've got to do it essentially because I need to pay the bills, but uh, I'm not working on Saturdays. That's where I draw the line. And uh, it's a reasonable place to draw the line because I need to have a social life. And I'm in the mood for beer and bingo later on. Um, we'll have a, a couple of beers tonight. So yesterday we were on the Tyne Bridge, uh, the group that I talk about, uh, Rebels on Roundabouts, which is about 15 or 20, sometimes 30 people. And we were on the, the south side of the, the Tyne Bridge uh, with, some, with some banners, just giving people some insight into how the world is. And uh, a lot of people were, were interested enough to, to beep be a little bit of support. Some people were calling me a wanker or, or telling me to F off or whatever, but not many. One or two. As you would expect in a crowd, there's always going to be one or two that are like that. So that just is what it is. Uh, but a lot of people are much more open now than they used to be. And much more willing to support, willing to, to show public support. Uh, the youngsters don't seem to get it, but uh, it seems to be, from a, a very rough demographic perspective, it's guys with beards who understand what we're doing, so it's the old hippies that understand it. And uh, and the young ones don't really understand it, because they're not old enough. They haven't got enough life experience. I didn't understand this stuff at 20 years old. I wouldn't expect anybody to. At 20 years old, you're only interested in living your life and having fun with your mates. It's not... It's not so... You can't dive into genocide at 20 years old. It would be a... Uh, a recipe for, for, for a constant state of depression. You, if you've got your life ahead of you, you have to have your life ahead of you. You can't dismiss it as a as something that's going to get taken away in a, in a slow slow kill. No, you can't. You just can't go there when you're 20 years old. Now, I don't blame anybody for not going there. Quite honestly, because I struggle with it. 56 so 
I don't know how they would possibly do it at 20. So that's where I am at the moment. Uh, we've had the Boris Johnson uh, leadership challenge. Vote of no confidence, which he won. Feels like a lifetime ago that now. But it was it was only the beginning of the week. And we've still got war raging in Ukraine and we've still got a potential for monkeypox. <coughs> all of these things. So I want to go to a report from Alexander Mercus from yesterday. Uh, which I haven't listened to yet, but I'll play the first 10 minutes or so. So I'll play this from Odyssey. That might take a little bit of time just to buffer up, buffer through. And as I said, Alexander Mercurius is pretty good with his explanations and his assessments of things in Ukraine. Good day. News about Ukraine in the British media uh, yesterday was not dominated by events on the ground or by the economic crisis, but by the conviction by a court in the Donetsk People's Republic of three um, fighters, uh, two British, one Moroccan, who had fought with the Ukrainian armed forces and whom the Russian authorities and the Donetsk authorities referred to as mercenaries. And the court in the Donetsk People's Republic proceeded to pass down a sentence, a death sentence, upon all three. Now, on this point, I wish to make my views on this entirely clear. First of all, I am an opponent of the death penalty. Secondly, I regard the whole legal proceedings against these three individuals as completely wrong and misconceived. I say wrong because it is based upon human rights, uh, uh, war crimes laws, which to my mind simply do not apply. This is in effect a violation of the rights of these three uh, uh, individuals, who to my mind are clearly combatants under the Con Geneva Convention. Now I say that, I appreciate that a great many people believe that uh, uh, mercenaries or, or people who engage in wars should receive punishment, um, even if not perhaps always the death penalty. But the law is what it is, and we can't just make it up and change it as suits us. If we do so, it ceases to be law. And I also think this is misconceived for a further reason. I believe that the reason the Russian authorities and the Donetsk authorities have taken this step is because they believe or assume that imposing these sort of death sentences on these three individuals is going to act as a deterrent against others, other uh, people who might be inclined to come and fight in the war in Ukraine. And the, the Russians have been very anxious and determined to prevent them doing so. And in fact, it's been widely known for some time that they've been targeting mercenaries. Uh, or people whom they refer to as mercenaries fighting on the Ukrainian side in this war. Well, I think this is misconceived because, to my mind, the number of people who are actually joining up 
to fight for Ukraine in this war is dwindling anyway. I dislike these kind of rationalizations for um, what I consider to be wrong and um, illegal acts. And I would say anyway that this rationalization, it seems to me, doesn't apply anyway. Anyway, that, I want to make it clear, is my own view. I know there will be people who will contest it. I'm happy to argue with this in another place, but I suppose I must now proceed with further discussions about the events in Ukraine itself. Having said that, I want to repeat, these are my views. I am opposed both to the trial and on the, of the sentence upon these three men, just as I am opposed equally opposed to the trial and sentences of Russian soldiers that the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian authorities have been conducting. It seems to me that these people are being prosecuted again without any legal basis or foundation on a completely misapplied principle of war crimes trials, which certainly and absolutely do not apply in these cases. And I think both sets of proceedings are wrong. Now, the reason I mentioned these Ukrainian cases of Russian soldiers is not in order to provide some kind of balance, but because there is some suggestion, apparently, that the Russians are waiting, are going to try and use these three soldiers, these three uh, uh, mercenaries, as they call them, for a prisoner swap. Well, I hope that happens. But I want to make it clear that I strongly disagree with this whole approach shown by the Russians in this case and by the Ukrainians in the previous case. OK, so that's that's the situation in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, I wanted to do a piece. Well, I wanted to play a piece of Matthias Desmond. He's, just, he's, he's on the on the podcast circuit again talking about his book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. Uh, the origin, to, yeah, The Psychology of Totalitarianism. So I found a, a piece on BitChute from the end of May. Well, there's 25 minutes of it. It's a very good explanation of, uh, of what happened during COVID. And obviously the same thing applies to Ukraine. It's the same psychological processes that are in operation that push people to be kind of hypnotized by the by the one thing. Uh, it's an underlying subconscious characteristics of human beings. So uh, anyway, this is Matthias Desmond. This is his uh, very accurate explanation. I think the more accurate the explanation we have for what's going on, the easier it is to, to defeat it. The easier it is to spot it when it happens again, and to and to limit it, and to move it around, into, and turn it into something else. And if we're going to do that on a mass scale, we have to have an accurate explanation of what's going on. This is the nearest we've got so far. So um, here's Matthias Desmond. It's Monday, May the 23rd, 2022, and we are so honoured to have Matthias Desmet on the show with us today to talk about some very important issues, especially with all the fear over the weekend, the past few days on monkeypox. So we're going to talk about everything in a second. But first of all, Matthias, welcome to the show, and please tell everybody who you are. Thank you, Pauline. I'm Matthias Desmet. Uh, I'm a 
professor in clinical psychology at Ghent University in Belgium. Um, I lecture on such stuff as psychoanalytic psychotherapy, but also on uh, mass formation and all kinds of um, uh, group dynamics. Um, uh, I was also, for some years, I was also involved very much into statistics. I got a master in statistics as well. And that's a little bit how I entered the story on the Corona crisis. I started to study the statistics, noticed that they often dramatically overestimated the dangerousness of the virus and started to uh, look for psychological explanations why uh, an entire society uh, didn't seem to be aware of the fact that the narrative they believed in showed a lot of uh, absurd characteristics. Uh, and that's where uh, I, I started to think about uh, this, in this process of mass formation that was uh, having a grip on, uh, or on society uh, throughout the last two years. Um, let's start by actually explaining to our viewers exactly what, what mass formation is. Yes. Please. Mass formation is a kind of a specific uh, uh, group dynamic, a specific kind of group formation, which uh, has very specific characteristic effects uh, at the level of the individuals, at the level of uh, the mental functioning of the individuals um, who, uh, who, who are in the grip of this process of mass formation. First and for all, individuals who are in the grip of the process of mass formation tend to become radically blind in a very ex impressive way um, for everything that uh, goes against what they believe in. So people who are in the grip of the process of mass formation um, typically are radically incapable of taking a critical distance of what the group believes in. That's something very, very specific for mass formation. And it, it, it's, it's, it's really extreme. Um, people who are in mass formation uh, really believe the most absurd things. Uh, and then they're, in one way or another are not capable of seeing anymore that they are, that they are absurd. And secondly, they also become willing to sacrifice themselves to a very extreme extent as well. So in one way or another, they um, seem not to be aware anymore uh, when things that are important to them personally, individually, are taken away from them. Um, then an, a third important characteristic is that they become, that individuals in, in, in mass formation become radically intolerant for dissonant voices. So it is as if everything that goes against what they believe in uh, makes them angry. And then they typically try to silence dissonant voices. And then finally, well, there are much more characteristics, of course, but I only mentioned the most important of them. So finally, like people who are in the grip of the process of mass formation do not only become intolerant for what they, for, for, for dissonant voices, for dissident voices, but they also typically uh, try to stigmatize the people uh, who, do not, who do not belong to the mass. And in the end, they typically commit cruelties towards the people who uh, do not buy into the narrative. And they do so, that's very important, as if it is an ethical, an ethical duty to do so. We've seen this in all major mass formations throughout history, whether we are talking about um, the Crusades or about the witch hunts or about the French Revolution or about... Uh, 
um, the large mass formations of the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany, we always see the same characteristic. People tend to, to commit cruelties, in the end, try to destroy the people who do not uh, buy into the narrative or who do not go along with the, with the mass narrative. And again, they do so as if it is an ethical duty to do so. I've been talking, I, I, I was talking uh, six weeks ago or something, I had this conversation with a woman from Iran, Shoref Ishtali was her name, has in her name. This conversa conversation is available on the internet. And this woman uh, lived in Iran during the revolution in 1979, a revolution which actually was followed by a large-scale mass formation and, a total, and, the, and the emergence of a totalitarian, a totalitarian regime in Iran. Totalitarian regimes are always based on mass formation. So that's very important. They are always based on mass formation. And this woman was living in Iran. And she told me how she witnessed, how she saw with her, with her own eyes, how a mother reported her son to the state and how she hung the rope around the neck, how she put the rope around the neck of her son before he was hung. That is typical typical for the process of mass formation. In a mass formation, people become so fanatically convinced of the narratives the group believes in that they think that it is their ethical duty to report everyone who, do, who does not go along with the narrative. And in the end, they are willing to commit even the people, to, to, uh, to destroy even the people whom they loved very much before the mass formation started. So that's a typical process that happens in every large-scale mass formation and in every totalitarian uh, state. Um, so that's important. Like, uh, at, at, we often um, think that the totalitarian state, such as the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany, is the same as a classical dictatorship, but it's not the same at all. A classical dictatorship is something completely different than a totalitarian state. And the, the difference is situated at the psychological level. In a classical dictatorship, people are just scared of a small group of, keep, of people. Uh, the totalitarian, the, the, the dictatorial regime. And uh, they, uh, they just obey because they are scared of the aggressive potential of the dictator and his regime. But in a totalitarian state, uh, their first is, there's always this there always is first a process of mass formation, and then slowly certain leaders take advantage of this mass formation and use it to seize control over the over the state and over the over society and over the state system. That that's that's uh, the basis of totalitarianism. Um, so mass formation, yes, that's the phenomenological characteristics of mass formation. But of course, um, uh, well. Maybe it's good, I don't know, to, to give a concise description of the mechanism of mass formation, because um, yeah, how, how, how does this, this kind of group formation emerges in a society? That's ex extremely important, I think. Like a mass formation happens when the population is in a very specific condition or a specific specific set of, of psychological conditions like and the first and most important condition is that before a mass formation to emerge many people should feel lonely and socially isolated that's the most crucial 
a precondition. There should be many people should be in a condition in which they stopped resonating with their natural and social environment. That's crucial. And for instance, just before the Corona crisis, um, over 30% of the people worldwide reported that they did not have one meaningful uh, uh, relationship. That was, I think, it has that. It had never been as high as just before the corona crisis, the number of uh, lonely people. Um, Theresa May in the UK, for instance, appointed the Minister of Loneliness because she acknowledged um, the extent of the, of, the, of the enormous amount of people that felt lonely. And then a second condition is that many people should be confronted with a lack of meaning making. And the, first, the second condition follows from the first one. When people feel socially isolated, they typically will also experience a, a lack of meaning making in life without connecting the two to each other. That's very characteristic. And also that was really the case just before the Corona crisis. Over 60% of the people worldwide, for instance, reported that they considered their job to be completely meaningless. That's to give only one example. And then the third very important condition is that there should be many people who are confronted with so-called free-floating anxiety, frustration, and aggression. That means anxiety, frustration, and aggression that people cannot connect to a mental representation. Or in other words, anxiety, frustrated and frustration, and aggression in which people do not know what they feel anxious for, what they feel frustrated for, and what they feel aggressive for. That means that all these negative effects anxiety, frustration, aggression, are freely floating in mental space. And then, under these conditions, every population is in this condition or, or, or is confronted with such experiences, something very typical might happen. If under these conditions, a narrative is distributed through the mass media, indicating an object of anxiety and the strategy to deal with this object of anxiety, for instance, a virus and lockdowns, or the Jews, and extermination camps, or um, witches, and uh, witch trials, and so on. If under these conditions, a narrative is distributed through the mass media, indicating an object of anxiety, and providing a strategy to deal with this object of anxiety, something very specific happens, all this free-floating anxiety connects whoop, in one moment to the object of anxiety indicated and the narrative that is distributed, and there might be a huge willingness to participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. Then that's very important, or that's, that's, that, that yields a certain advantage at the psychological level. Before, people were confronted with anxiety without being able to control that anxiety. Because if you are scared or anxious and you don't know what you're anxious for, you cannot control your anxiety. And once, you connect all your anxiety to a certain object, for instance, a virus, and someone gives you a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. You are under the illusion that you can control your anxiety. You can manage your anxiety just by participating in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. And then that in its turn leads to a second advantage, which is even more important. Because many people at the same time participate in a strategy to deal with the object of anxiety. People have the experience of being connected again. They fight the same collective battle, heroic battle, 
with the object of anxiety, the virus, or the witches, or uh, uh, the aristocracy in the Soviet Union, or the Jews in, uh, in, in Nazi Germany. It doesn't matter. It's always people have the feeling of being connected again in the same heroic battle with the object of anxiety. And that's the real reason why people buy into the narrative, even if it is blatantly wrong, just because people, people participate in the strategy to deal with the object of anxiety, not because they think the narrative is right or accurate or correct. No, they participate in the narrative in the, in, 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 in the narrative because it gives these psychological advantages. It reconnects them and it connects all the negative affectivity to a mental representation. And on the first, you could think like, okay, what's the problem then? People felt lonely and isolated and now they feel connected again. Yes, there is a problem. First and for all, the masses always need a scapegoat. They always need an object or something that can be made the object of their frustration and aggression, something that can be destroyed. And secondly, maybe even more important, this new connection, this new social bond that seems to free people from their loneliness is not a social bond between individuals. This new group, this crowd or this mass, is formed because every individual separately establishes a bond or connects to the collective. So the solidarity in a mass is never a solidarity between individuals. It's always a solidarity between the individual and the collective. And that explains why, for instance, during the Corona crisis, people were all talking about solidarity and citizenship, but they accepted that if someone got an accident on the street, they were no longer allowed to help that person unless by accident, they had surgical gloves and masks at their disposal, which almost nobody has. But at the same time, also to give another example, people also accepted they were all, they were all talking about solidarity with the elderly, for instance. And at the same time, they accepted that if their parents were dying, they were not allowed to visit them during their last hours here on this earth. So that's so typical for mass formation. It, it's not a reconnection between individuals. It's every individual separately shows a huge solidarity with the collective, but not with the other individuals. And that's also the reason why totalitarian states and totalitarian states, um, uh, after a while, there's typically, typically a radically paranoid atmosphere because the... Right, I'm going to jump in there just for a couple of minutes. Uh, because you said a couple of things I want to I want to respond to, and uh, the first thing is that the 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 fight against the aristocracy in Russia is the equivalent of fighting the new world order. That's what that's that's the same dynamic being played out again, except it's a global scale this time instead of on a country country scale. So. It was a mass formation then. It could very easily be a mass formation now. So mass formation isn't just on one side. It's on two, three, four sides 
of a of a discussion. It's just it's just as likely to be on the alternative media side as it is on the mainstream media side. So that's what the first thing I wanted to say. The second thing is about the uh, free foot floating anxiety and anger. There's a lot of it about. I've been through that. I've been through it over the last five years or so. I had a lot of repressed anger. Anger from my childhood that I, I couldn't get out. That I had to find a way to get out. And it, it happened as part of a, a psychological process group that I was part of. It wasn't really deliberate. It was just something that happened because of the relationships in that group. And the process that was set up in that group. But because I knew it was it was a psychological process, I was one step removed from the anger, so I wasn't in the anger, which made it easier to let go. And uh, we used to meet three or four times a week, which means that it was time to build relationships. So, so the loneliness that I was feeling was taken care of by that process group, and that process group led to a process that released my anxiety and my anger in the end. It was painful, it was annoying, but it was necessary. <coughs> so, back to Matthias Tesman. Social bond between the individuals deteriorates the longer the mass formation lasts and the, social, and the bond between the individual and the collective becomes stronger and stronger and stronger, meaning that after a while, People are willing, because there is no bond anymore between the individuals, even not the bond between the mother and her son, to, to, to return to the example that I just gave. Also, these bonds deteriorate, and they are replaced by the bond between the individual and the collective, meaning that they are willing to report everyone to the state, just because the bond between individuals does not exist anymore, and the bond between the individual and the state or the collective becomes very strong. So that's um, the... The highly problematic mechanism of mass formation, which is exactly the same as hypnosis, exactly. It's, 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 what happens in a hypnosis is simple. There is someone, a hypnotist, who has like a natural skill or a talent to detach all the attention and the psychological energy of the environment of someone else huh? and then focus it on one very, very small aspect of reality. And once this happens, it is as if the rest of reality doesn't exist anymore. And then... This mechanism is extremely strong, extremely strong. For instance, a simple hypnotic procedure is sufficient to make someone radically insensitive to pain to this extent that you can perfectly perform an operation, a surgical operation on that person, on that person, he won't notice it. Here in Belgium, there is a university hospital where every year hundreds of surgical operations happen under hypnosis. And it's, I've, I've seen it once. It's extremely simple. So there is a physician who hypnotizes the patient and the other one, after a simple hypnotic procedure, can start to cut through the skin, the flesh, sometimes straight through the breastbone to perform an open heart operation. The patient won't notice it. That's what's happening in mass formation. First, all the attention withdraws from the environment throughout a few years or decades sometimes. Then there is this narrative that focuses all the attention on one point, for instance, the virus and the, victim, the victims claimed by the virus. And consequently, 
people don't seem to aware anymore of all the rest of reality. They don't seem to be aware anymore that the corona measures themselves will claim much more victims than the virus could claim. So all kinds of stuff. It's exactly the same as hypnosis. Wow. Matthias, can I ask you, I know we've gotten um, into the mass formation thing, but what would it take to break that spell? What, what would it take to go the completely opposite way? And what would it take to create a world that is intolerant of this radically intolerant government? Like it, it's a system at this point. It's, you know, um, and, and how do we prevent that from happening ever again if we can get out of this? That's a good question. Um, it depends. In the short term, uh, the process of mass formation, it's, it's, it's extremely difficult to wake someone up who is in, you know, we can distinguish between what we could do in the short term and what we could do in the long term, I think. In the short term, it's clear that it is extremely difficult to wake someone up who is in the process of mass formation, just because his attention is so focused on one point that you usually, that he that all the rational counter-argumentations won't work. Um, but nevertheless, and that's extremely important, if people who do not agree with uh, the narrative that led to the mass formation continue to speak out, they won't be able to wake up the masses, but they will be able to, but their speech will disrupt the process of mass formation. It will constantly disrupt the process of mass formation and it will prevent the people who are into the mass formation to become to go so deep in the hypnotizing process that they become convinced that it is their ethical duty to destroy everyone who does not go along with them. So that's clear. History is full of examples which show very clear, very clearly that it is exactly at the moment that the dissonant voices stop to speak out, that the cruelties start. So it's important that we continue to speak out. Now, uh, that was demonstrated in Nazi Germany and in the Soviet Union time and time again. As soon as the opposition stopped to speak out in 1930 in the Soviet Union, 1935 in uh, Nazi Germany, within a period of six months, the cruelties started. So it's important that they continue to speak out. But in the long term, that's very important. Like, what should happen for society to become not sensitive anymore to mass formation and to... Um, to um, uh, accept leaders that do not um, use this process of mass formation to get a grip on society and to, uh, to manipulate the population. Um, that's a very important question. I think that's a question that I, that I answer in my book. In my book, The Psychology of Totalitarianism, which was will be published uh, here in, in uh, the English version, will be published somewhere in June, the June 23rd, I think. And my book, that's exactly what I describe in my book because I gave many podcasts about the mechanism, mechanism of mass formation, but uh, actually to, to, give a, to, 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 to give a thorough discussion or to present a thorough discussion on how, um, why our culture is so sensitive for mass formation and what the ultimate solution is to this process of mass formation, I needed more than one podcast, but, but because it's 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 quite it's it's it needs a, a broader discussion of of the historical of the historical uh, processes that led to mass formation and to totalitarianism. But what I think is the following: to to put it in a nutshell, I think that well, um, it's clear that 
our society now is so sensitive to mass formation and totalitarianism because the dominant view on man and the world because of the dominant view on man and the world in our society so like from the 16th century onward um, our society was more and more dominated by what is usually called the mechanist materialist view on man and the world namely we consider the universe and the human being as a material system like a collection of elementary particles atoms molecules and so on that all interact with each other uh, according to the laws of mechanics and that can be perfectly described understood and controlled in a rational way we believe that our rational understanding is capable of grasping the essence of the world and of everything that exists. And that's, uh, first and for all, this led, it's actually this view on man and the world that made people so sensitive to mass formation. I can also describe this in a nutshell. It's this view on man and the world that led to an excessive industrialization, mechanization of the world and to, to an excessive use of technology and all these things, industrialization, mechanization, 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 the use of technology typically lead to people who feel lonely and isolated from their environment. I give many examples in my book. The more technology is used, the more the world is industrialized, the more people become disconnected from their environment the more they stop resonating with the world around them. I, I'm talking about the excessive use of technology and the excessive industrialization of the world. And it's exactly in this state that people become so sensitive for the strange process of mass formation. So you have this idea that everything can be understood in a, in a rational, rationalistic, in a rational, in a, in a rational way. This leads to uh, lack of connection with the, with, the, with the environment. This leads to mass formation. Mass formation leads to totalitarianism. So the, the core the core problem, and uh, again, I, I explain, I give many examples in my book, very detailed examples, how, which show how, what the psychological effects are, disruptive effects are of, uh, of, of excessive technology use and, and uh, industrialization. So actually, once you understand that, you understand that we have to try to find a way to overcome this mechanist view on man and the world and this rationalist view on man and the world. And the strange thing is that actually all major scientists, such as uh, Max Planck, Schrödinger, Heisenberg, Bohr, Lorenz, uh, Mandelbrot, uh, René Tom, and so on, all major scientists of the last centuries actually started believing that the universe is a materialist mechanist system that can be perfectly understood in a rational in a rational way and they all left this view on man and the world they all claimed that in the end it is clear that only a very small part of reality can be understood in a rational in a rational way and that all the rest of reality René Tom uh, formulated it in a very eloquent way he said there is only a small part of reality that can be understood in a rational way. And the rest of reality, he said, we can only know 
by emphatically resonating with it. And that's, I think, that's the major challenge for our culture and society. We have to move. We have to, first and for all, we have to become aware that nature, the world, the universe, and so on, that our rational understanding is not capable of grasping the essence of the things around us. That's, yes. I, I have a question for you, please. Um, there are many, many viewers watching, and uh, I know my co-host here in the same situation. In fact, I don't know if there's a family that's not. So we all... I want to switch from there. That was the first 25 minutes. I don't know who the people are who, was in, who were interviewing. Polly Tomey, Nadera Lopez-Garrity, and the other ladies I can't see the names of. Uh, Amanda Forbes, says, but... All right, I'm talking to myself because <laughs> I'm muted. Great stuff. All right, so time to say hello to the chat room. I'll do all do all that again. So um, now I put the link to the Matthias Desmond interview in in the chatty chat room, and just to say hello to the people there who uh, who came in to came in to listen to me, or came in and listened to me because I'm on, and. Uh, I've got an audience at Revolution Radio. I've got an audience for the podcast now as well. Um, goes all over the world. Got people in India and Australia and Canada and uh, Grenada, all over, all over the place. So it, it's established now. It's taken me a hundred shows, two years or whatever, to get my rhythm sorted. But it takes as long as it takes, as far as I'm concerned. I'm doing it for fun, so I'm not putting any pressure on myself to to get things right with this show. It just is what it is, ultimately. And that's the way to have fun with it. And it turns into a better show sometimes. So I've got a little bit of uh, the Dark Horse podcast to finish off with. This is... Uh, Episode 129, which was last weekend. There's another one coming up in about an hour's time, I think. So if you're a fan of Brett Weinstein, keep an eye out for that. It'll be on YouTube, it's on Odyssey as well. Well, here's a little bit of last week's show. Just to take us through. Just a reminder, Revolution Radio's list for supporters. So if you can, if you can, if you can make a donation, then please do. And you'll find the place to do that at freedomslips.com or revolution.radio. And here's Brett and Heather. From, uh, from that forest, it is conspicuous. And it raises questions about what is really occurring. So I, I, I hope that people who hear that are on the, um, the aggressively pro-vaccine side uh, in this argument think about it and realize yes oh of course I want those people treated it's in our interest it's in our interest now it is the morally right thing and it is certainly in our interest the next time there's some vaccine and a question about whether or not it's safe to take we need to know how how safe these were for us to be able to do that next time absolutely absolutely 
So uh, finally, you wanted to revisit the epidemic of sophistry. And I, I believe that's actually the title that we gave to an episode where you talked about sophistry a fair bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about the epidemic of sophistry because um, we've had this uh, film emerge this week, which you and I have not seen. It's paywalled, um, but we've certainly seen clips of it. What is a woman? Mm -hmm. uh, a Matt Walsh piece. And it has sparked uh, a number of, you know, investigations of that question. And it, it alerted me to one thing that I thought needed exploring. There is a trick that is played. It's a legalistic trick. And the trick is, oh, you, well, you say, you know, women's sports uh, should only include people who, um, you know, born females. You know, uh, well, you know, are you able to define those terms, right? And the implication is that a failure to be able to define a term indicates that you're a poser for using that term. Certainly, you shouldn't be using terms you can't define. In fact, that's not the case. In fact, we do this all the time. And in fact, you would be utterly hobbled in communicating almost anything if you only were allowed to use words that you could define with a reasonable degree of precision. Yeah. And so actually, Zach, would you put up my uh, elephant tweet and put it where we can read it if you would? It's a lot of dead air. Yeah, it is a lot of dead air. Okay, so... Uh, I put up the following thought experiment. I said, consider this. If we choose a thousand adults at random and ask them to define elephant, it is unlikely that any of them could do it. But if we showed each of them a thousand animals, only one of which was an elephant, they would all identify it correctly. Okay. Now, what do I mean by this? Lots of people came back and they said, well, I think lots of people could do a decent job defining an elephant. No, nope, I promise you, you can't because the definition of an elephant is inherently phylogenetic. The definition is an elephant is the descendant of the most recent common ancestor of all elephants. Um, People are going to hate that. They're going to hate it, but that's... So secular, using elephants to define elephants. Um, it, it's just true, though. It's just simply true. And anything else you try to do runs afoul of all kinds of uh, ambiguities, right? If you try to define it based on the large ears, the large stature, the trunk, whatever it is, the point is you're giving characteristics that will help you recognize one. And indeed, they are characteristics that will help you recognize one, but they don't define elephant. And so the point is... For a thousand people chosen at random to be able to identify an elephant from a thousand animals chosen at random, that says that there is something unambiguous about elephantness, right? It does not, the ability to recognize that thing does not depend on your ability to spell out what the synquanon of elephantness is, right? And so, my basic point is, we all know what a woman is, right? In fact, in this case, the definition is pretty simple, and we've gotten shy about it because we're afraid of all of the questions about ambiguities at the edge that we can't answer, even though there is no fundamental ambiguity. Zach, you can put up my screen now. So this is, this is not your point. Right. But, but one of the points here is actually every human being past a certain age should be able to easily define what a woman is, just as they could define what a man is. And... I did so um, in the end of March on my substack in a piece I called I am a woman and a biologist. And no, you shouldn't need to be a biologist to be able to do this. Uh, a woman, of course, is an adult human female. And I then define adult human and female 
female being the point on which people seem very interested in being sophists. Females, I posit, are individuals who do or did or will or would, but for developmental or genetic anomalies, produce eggs. Eggs are large sessile gametes. Gametes are sex cells. In plants and animals and most other sexually reproducing organisms, there are two sexes, female and male. Like adult, the term female applies across many species. Female is used to distinguish such people from males who produce, do or did or will or would, but for development or genetic anomalies, produce small mobile gametes, that is to say sperm, or in the case of plants, pollen. So right. in this case, there is a simple definition, and everyone actually should be able to have that right at the tip of their fingertips. But you know, the elephant question not not now, not here. It'd be interesting to get into, you know, what you know, how does an elephant how does asking people to define elephant differ from asking people to define woman? Yeah. And um <clears throat> part of part of the issue, although they are both biological at, at one level, is that elephant is a uh, lineage. Yeah. And female is not Okay, we're coming to the end of the show now, so just a reminder of where you can find me online. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do that. My name on Twitter is Dennis Barker. Uh, you'll find me on Podbean, and uh, my name on Podbean is Dennis Barker Radio Projects. You'll find me on Odyssey, where my name is Radio Projects. You'll find me on BitChute and Rumble, where my name is Radio Projects. I'm brand YouTube, I'm Radio Projects, so it's always a combination of Dennis Barker, Radio Projects, or Free Association Radio Show. If you try any any of those things in combination, you should come up with come up with a show, either as a podcast or a video or a channel or something of, of that sort. So the channel on Odyssey is where I'm most active, and the channel on Rumble I'm starting to be active on. Uh, via my phone, so there's lots of short videos going up on Rumble at the moment. Four, three, four, five minute videos, no longer than that. Just thoughts as I'm walking down the street. Odyssey's better for reposting material and longer material. So I post the radio shows on there. And BitChute is essentially just. Uh, a channel for whatever whatever 10, 10 or 15 minute videos I come up with. I might start posting the the shorter phone videos to BitChute as well. If that, and if that picks up, I'll, I'll keep doing it. Because that's a format that I like. So just the walk, walking about on the streets of Newcastle, talking into the phone is a way that I can produce content. So I'm going to keep doing things that way. But for the time being, that's pretty much it. I'll be back next Saturday at 11am Eastern, 4pm UK time. Uh, I'll pick some clips. There'll be a bit more of me next week, because I hopefully will get rid of this sore throat. But all being well, I'll see you then. Uh, have a good week, and thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. Much appreciated.
everyone. It's Barbara Jean Lindsay, the Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Hi, I'm Bill Johnson. Some consider my efforts to be an underground law school. I am not an attorney, and I do not give legal advice. I teach. That's lawful and legal. Consider yourself served. You are to appear Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, Studio A. My forte? Foreclosure and contract law. Grab your legal pad and pen. Learn a broad spectrum of law spanning administrative, criminal, family, tort, and federal law. Fools and losers cling to old cases. I dissect and comment on the latest rulings that control the courts. Don't be a loser. And if you don't appear, you will be held in contempt. Are you interested in the paranormal? Murder mystery? Real natural law? Do you enjoy interviews with amazing guests? Then join Crip Rick every Monday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, right here on Revolution Radio. Studio A, freedomslips.com. Crip Rick's Ivan Thinker. Welcome to the Crypt. <laughs> what the heck is the truth, Jihad? Hey, I'm Kevin Barrett, host of 